Welcome to PA Centered, a podcast designed to help listeners be a part of the solution to end sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. Each episode, we will take on a topic or current event to help spark conversation and break down barriers to building communities free from sexual violence. This is part two of the episode, Dancing on Live Embers, with Tina Lopez and Barb Thomas. If you haven't listened to part one yet, we encourage you to go back and do so first. This episode picks up right where we left off at the end of episode one. Enjoy! Hi, I'm Tatiana Piper. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm the Community Advocacy Coordinator at the Pennsylvania Coalition Against Rape. I'll be your host today as we're joined by Tina Lopez and Barb Thomas, the authors of Dancing on Live Embers, Challenging Racism in Organizations. Welcome, Tina and Barb. Thank you. Thanks so much, Tatiana. Glad to be back with you. So glad to have you back both of you back on PA Centered. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episodes eight and nine, I highly encourage you to go back and take a listen. In those two episodes, Barb and Tina discuss the themes from the book and how white privilege and power show up as obstacles in nonprofit, nonprofits and especially anti-sexual violence organizations. And on today's episode, Tina and Barb are here to talk about how to utilize and improve organizational assessments to measure anti-racism efforts. First, I wanna say thank you both for authoring such a incredible guiding book. Uh, the examples, resources, tools are a great asset to organizations looking to improve and supplement their racial justice work. One piece we found at PCAR Helpful is section five, the more tools and strategies section. So much so that when it was time to find a tool to measure PCAR's progress towards becoming an anti-racist and inclusive organization, our building accountability and cultural humility work group, leadership team and board were able to work together to adapt and implement the organizational checklist for racial equity which is on page 245, to fit our organization structure and needs. And so I know we want to take a minute just to introduce our social identities before we dive into this conversation. I, Tatiana, am a Black cis woman, and I believe i pass it to you all to introduce Barb. Hi, everybody. This is a real pleasure to be back with you, Tatiana. Um, I am a white cis woman um, stumbling along trying to do anti-racism work. Um, Perhaps we can talk about that a little later. Hello, Tatiana and everyone listening. This is Tina Lopez. I'm really glad to be back because it's a signal to me that the work that you're doing to advocate for change in PCAR is working. So thanks for inviting us back. I say that because as a racialized person, as we say in Canada, or as you say in the States, a person of color, I've been doing anti-racism work for over 30 years and seeing how quickly it often falls off the table. I'm also... um, learning a lot as a woman with many privileges. I have cis privilege, I'm self-identify as heterosexual and 
English is my first language and what I'm finding compelling in my work is um, having conversations with people about how we have both privileges and, and experiences of discrimination and oppression and the kinds of skills it takes to be able to work from both those identities and dynamics. So let's talk more about that too. I really appreciate that, Tina. And I always welcome these conversations with, with both of you. I've learned so much from you both over the years and very grateful for, the, for those opportunities. So diving into today's topic, uh, Tina, can you tell us what an organizational assessment should do and why should organizations use them? I'm chuckling a bit, Tatiana, when I hear that question. <laughs> Mostly because the checklist, and as you say, we put one in our book, and um, we put one in there because the, it's one of the most frequent requests that we had. Can you give us a checklist? Um, and we knew that there were lots of pros and cons to developing tools like this, right? So the positive is that for people who are busy and rushing and who want something that feels manageable and something that will focus their work, an organizational checklist is a really helpful thing because it identifies some key areas of work and it helps people who who sometimes we all of us feel overwhelmed at the thought of how do we change our organizations and so the tool is beneficial because it helps to settle some of that anxiety um, and it offers some clear specific areas of working it is however um, at the back of our book for a reason <laughs> because there's so much work that needs to be done at the individual level, at the interpersonal level, and at the systemic level to prepare people to actually engage in the work that the organizational um, assessment checklists point to. So there's lots to say about that, but I'm gonna let Barb add, and then I'll probably come back in. Um, well, I think also the checklist is useful when we have a frame of mind of learning um, and not of proving. Um, and by that I mean, um, Tina and I have both been in organizations where the checklist is used uh, to tick things off, to prove to funders that uh, they're woke and things are good. Um, and in the course of that, more harm is done uh, to racialized people in the organization who are actually trying to get something done. So I would say uh, that in the way that Tina uh, identified this, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. It requires um, an openness and a curiosity about really learning where racism is lodged in the organization so that we can do something about it. If that isn't the mindset, then actually harm can be done. I don't know whether you want to say more about that, Tina. I think we could wax yeah. eloquent about what not to do, but um, 
anyway, I just needed to say that that needs to be the frame of reference, that it's gathering information. And white supremacy is the default. It, it takes everyday effort to keep racism on the table as a project to dismantle. And if people are thinking it's a quick fix, then more people will be hurt in the organization as a result of that. I'd love to add to that, if I may, Tatiana. <laughs> yes. Uh, so I w wish that we had stamped a handle with caution on the organizational change checklist when it was published. Because we find people with really good intentions latching onto it and using it in ways that actually do um, the opposite of what they're intending, which is that it's being often used to reinforce the privileges and advantages of whiteness and um, in ways that people don't have uh, some consciousness of. So what do I mean by that? One of the ways in which our checklist is often used is that it's sent to individuals in an organization and they're asked to respond. And then the responses are collected. And um, that's actually a, a highly problematic way to use this checklist because there's no way to know how individuals understood each of the items in the, in the checklist to make sure they had a shared understanding to look at who was responding and why. So for example, one of the items in our checklist is um, people in the organization feel supported and encouraged to speak up about racism. It would be important to be able to tell if the people who are saying, yes, we feel very supported, experience the privileges and protections of whiteness in the organization, and if the people who are saying no are people of color. The other thing is that these organizational assessments ideally should be used as a catalyst for discussion, for education, rather than being sent to individuals, what we were hoping is that they these items on the checklist would be brought to committee meetings, staff meetings, wherever the organization is gathering to have a conversation about, so what do we think? So it's evident who is speaking and why. And in the absence of that really important uh, factor, condition that Tina's talking about, what can happen and what we've seen happen is that uh, people of color who feel invited to say, actually, uh, no, I don't feel uh, comfortable raising uh, the fact that my supervisor treats me differently than she treats or he treats um, my white colleague, um, are punished for saying that because the scores are not as good on the, the results because it was never intended to gather information in order to fix things. Um, so it's, yes, stamped, 
Stamped, use with caution. I like that, Tina. <laughs> well, I think one thing I'm, I'm hearing and picking up from you both is the intentionality for using an assessment tool or checklist like this really needs to be handled with care and needs to be the impact of the questions that are asked and who they're being asked of truly has to be considered before even going down the road of do we or how do we measure um, our organizational improvements or culture change. And so I've explained a bit um, about PCAR's organizational assessment. Uh, and as the authors of the original assessment that we adapted from, how or in what ways could PCAR or just similar racial justice assessments be even more useful, especially tying in that intentionality um, pieces that we spoke about um, There's so much to say about that, Tatiana. <laughs> it's a great question. How to make these organizational assessment checklists more useful and more effective. And you said a number of things. One of the things is that you said as a way of measuring progress. Um, and you know, kudos to PCAR for asking to do the assessment and for putting it in place. Uh, PCAR has uh, got a racial justice policy. Um, it's made statements clearly that says that it wants to function as an organization, both internally and externally, in a way that uh, addresses and dismantles racism. And so uh, as my understanding is that this organizational change assessment was asked for by leaders and um, some of the results were have now been captured. So the question then is, how do you interpret the results of the assessment? That's one of the key points to whether or not you're measuring change is that when you conduct these assessments, you're creating a bit of a benchmark of where we are at now. And if we return to this assessment, and I, I think PCAR has a plan to do that, how do you measure if you have actually been doing work to shift the ways in which the organization is functioning in these various areas that have been itemized. So if we go back to the point that I'm making about these assessment tools being used to establish a benchmark of where things are at now, um, I would say it would be important to not take this as uh, individual responses, but to actually have conversations as employee groups. Because one of the biggest um, myths about equity or anti-racism work or EDI work, whatever the language, racial justice work, one of the biggest myths is that 
your personal opinion about whether it's happening and how it's happening and whether things are better or worse is the most relevant factor. And, it, and actually, that's a really dangerous um, myth that is widely held, that individuals' personal opinions about these things are a critical way of doing this work. We know from the work of sexual violence that lots of people with lots of identities have individual opinions about whether a survivor should be believed, about the kinds of questions a survivor of sexual violence can and ought to be asked. And so it's similar with racism. Rather than relying on personal opinion, I think these organizational assessment tools should be used to determine what are the patterns that we're seeing in different parts of our organization. So we look at these, some of the questions we've posed in the organizational assessments are not just about how individuals think things are happening, but they're about systemic practices. So are supervisors in the way they're making decisions being consistent or are there ways in which decision making by supervisors, managers or executives are being differentially applied to people based on the bodies they're in? And is there a correlation between what's happening to employees inside the organization and what's happening to the people being served in programs? So. Um, how do we use these tools to create organizational patterns based on the informed gathering of evidence by people in different parts of the organization? Well, that makes my brain go in so many different directions, Tina, um, because I do think that one of the things missing and just to kind of lay out the structure of what uh, is in your book and also what we adapted at PCAR is it's a question and then it says uh, no working on it or yes and so that doesn't lend itself to getting those bits that you're talking about is what are the factors that go into it so if we're talking about supportive supervision it doesn't really take into account the individuals or even the teams or departments experience or of what they're experiencing, how they're experiencing it and doesn't really give us information on how to improve their experience uh, because it's not looking at those more detailed uh, systemic and patterns. So that makes so much sense to me. Thank you, Tina, for that. I, I wanted to just reiterate something again that's, that's in the spirit of, of what Tina's saying. Um, if we think that this is going to be a quick fix because we've put a couple of systems in place and we need to be able to show progress, um, then when we look at, for example, um, uh, a situation where it says people are supported for speaking about racism and racial equity in the workplace. And let's say um, half of the people say no 
and a third of the people say yes and somebody's in the middle of course that's not going to be fixed yet of course uh racialized people are more likely to be labeled as troublemakers and inconvenient people for raising the question of racism once again um, and maybe they've had to do it before and maybe it's they've experienced racism 15 times before they finally complained that's not in there so there needs to be a, a, a mindset that this is humble work this is everyday work this is not going to be fixed uh, quickly and the conversations that Tina is talking about are really really important for people to tease out the 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 threads and the complexities of how these things are happening and not happening and maybe it's a little bit better than it was last year yay and and maybe now some other stuff is coming up that wasn't there before and we need to have that conversation and figure out how to do it without putting racialized people people of color at more risk And in, in order to do that, um, which is so important, Barb, of not putting people of color at risk, you know, Tatiana, when you were reading out the categories of no working on it and yes, which is the categories available to people on the checklist, part of the reason I'm saying to use this as a catalyst and not as an exact tool is that then what would happen is as people are answering these questions and checking either the no, the yes, or the working on it, the most significant question isn't to tally up the answers, but it's to say, well, how do you know? What is the evidence you are using? And how is your own social identity affecting the evidence you're pointing to? that those are the critical parts of implementing conversations about this tool if you are going to actually establish a meaningful way of measuring how the organization is doing how people even have that conversation around a table in the different bodies they're in actually practicing anti-oppression or anti-racism skills would mean that you would be talking about how power is playing out organizationally, socially, even in having a discussion about why you put your check mark in a particular column. And I am a visual person. So as you're talking, I'm kind of visualizing what that would look like, especially what that would look like at an organization like PCAR. Uh, so that's kind of the thing that I'm thinking is, you know, by going by question and having folks meet who are saying no to be in one space, folks that said working on it in another space, and folks that said yes in their separate space and having those conversations to get at, well, why why is it yes for you? Or why is it working on it? Or why is it no? What are your experiences? Um, where, where in the organization do you fit? 
Uh, what's your level of leadership? What's your social identities? Is that what you're what you are imagining or feel could be best practice, or is there something different and um, how that could look for organizations, especially sexual violence organizations? I, I'm, um, my, my mind is excited by the image you were drawing because it wasn't the image in my mind, Tatiana. <laughs> That's what I love about these conversations is that it's not like there's only one way of doing this. So um, I'm enjoying the fact that you had a very different image in your head than the one I had. Some of what I think we need to take into account in answering that question is what Barb was pointing to earlier. How, how do we ensure that the process does not paint a bullseye on the chests of people of color who are already at risk in having this conversation. Um, and so I imagine when you were talking about having people in different spaces based on how they answered, I don't know if that was your thinking, but one of the, the, the reasons for that that came to mind as I was listening to you is that you would want to make it a, a space where there's less risk to people based on the bodies they're in to provide a rationalization for why they they chose to put a check mark the way they did i was in a different place with this um, i was actually thinking for example of executive and senior leadership teams having those conversations before they try and have them with staff because it's really important for people with organizational and hierarchical power to be mindful about what they're asking the people who report to them to do. So I was thinking of this, um, that discussion happening first by people who have the most power to do something with the results. And for that, um, executive and senior leadership people who come together would need to have that conversation with each other first. And I often in organizations um, that I'm walking into in 2022, there aren't that many people of color in senior leadership teams. And so I wouldn't want to put the one or two, maybe if we're lucky, three people of color on the spot to be you know, away from or all by themselves. Um, but I think that what we would have to do is lay the groundwork. Um, so Barb and I often talk about how she as a white woman will assist white leaders to really um, develop some competencies to think about how their whiteness as leaders will have an impact on the conversation. Barb, would you like to say something about that? Well, um, in a, um, just what's coming to my mind right now, I, I could speak about this a long time, but in, a, in an organization that I was in last week, um, um, there was a lot of rumor in the background about a woman who uh, had been fired um, and uh, 
she was a black woman and uh, she apparently, uh, uh, nobody's clear why she was fired, um, but she uh, was told, uh, somebody told about her to the seniors and she was fired. So um, there's a conversation in the organization now about what happened there. And one of the things that happens is who gets the benefit of the doubt when somebody reports something and who does not get the benefit of, of the doubt. In fact, the, at the first opportunity, the worst is thought. So in this organization that I continue to work in, there are very mediocre white people who look like me who are making mistakes all the time and whose mistakes are not being reported. Um, and if they are being reported, nothing is being done about them. Um, so I think this is a thread that goes uh, uh, in this, under the skin of all of that we're talking about here. And when we're talking about white leaders, we have to get them to think about who they're giving the benefit of the doubt to and whose mistakes get um, get free passage. So that is one place that we start, usually with a case or something that's happened recently, because there's always something that's happened recently in an organization that we can work with. So I don't know whether that's enough to start with, um, Tina. I know, for example, that as a white person, I get given the benefit of the doubt all the time. And that is something that I can start with, um, with a group of people. How do you know I'm telling you the truth? You know, you just like my face, you like the way I talk. I kind of fit in with you. What are some of the ways I fit in with you? How would I be talking if I didn't fit in with you? And it's, uh, it's not a comfortable conversation, but I can raise that question and keep smiling at people and they, we have to have the conversation. You know, you're saying that Barb makes me think about uh, the importance uh, there is for, if you're having black indigenous and other people of color staff, that their supervisor needs to be armed with the ability to give the benefit of the doubt, not just to their white staff, but to, as you all say, racialized staff as well. And that they have to have that skill in order to effectively supervise staff of color. So I would go one step further as we do in the book. And that is to say that if I'm a white supervisor of racialized or of staff of color and white staff, I need to anticipate the inequities that are already going on in the lives of the racialized staff and how those inequities and racial injustice are affecting their ability to do their jobs and the working conditions that they're working under. And if I'm not doing that, if I then, and I'm treating everybody the same, then I'm actually contributing to the racist environment that they're in. If you understand what I'm trying to say. 
Tina, maybe you can explain it better. Not better, but I think this is one of the places where you and I often have conversations, Barb, because mm. I get worried when I hear you saying white people anticipating the inequities that Indigenous Black and people of color face, because I, I don't think white people can be trusted to do that okay. skillfully and knowledgeably, though I really appreciate what you're pointing to and what would what I would invite instead is for white leaders to look at the unearned advantages they confer on other white people without noticing. Better. I think that will point more clearly and that's an appropriate examination for white people is to look at how white advantage and whiteness and white supremacy is actually working already. So I'm offering that as an adjustment to what you're saying, partly because, um, you know, you and I've been doing this work for a long time. I've yet to meet an overtly, staunchly, you know, deliberately racist white person in leadership. Often there are people who genuinely want to do the right thing, who, when they make statements about wanting to dismantle racism, mean it, but then are really naive or unprepared for what it really means, and then start to read books about indigenous people or black people, and, and, and that isn't actually the work that will be most productive because, rather than you know trying to learn about how racism is operating it would be very helpful if white people were doing due diligence on how whiteness is operating and has been and continues to and how they and others are benefiting so that they can start to interrupt that part of the reason i'm raising that is because you know, I was, you and I had a conversation, we were quite moved by the racism in the movement blog or article that PCAR management staff um, made on May 3rd, yes. 2022. It's unusual to have the management staff of an organization um, say things like, you know, PCAR is the oldest state anti-sexual violence coalition in the nation and we see ourselves in this article is a strong statement to make and they go on further in this article to say white staff particularly those in management and leadership positions must be committed to and actively seek out a lifetime of anti-racism learning and actions I remember um, when I read that, being moved by it and feeling like it was a hopeful um, position to take so publicly. Yes. And then, um, you know, and, and kudos for management for doing that in a publicly posted blog. And then as with all of us, you know, I critique myself as a heter as a person with heterosexual privilege about where I then start to fall down in the work. And in looking at that blog, some of the actions that were being given as examples of how PCAR is doing that, I found 
a little disappointing. And, and it's not because I don't think there was sincere desire to live up to the statement, but it's because I think um, we remain at the awareness level in this work. So, you know, there's a lot of items there about listening to black leaders, which is important and signing a letter. But what you and I have been trying to do in the organizational assessment is to insist that there are commitments made by leaders, not just to awareness building, but to actually focused specific areas of internal change work that can that they can be held accountable for right and so i'm i'm hoping that that white leaders don't just demonstrate that they they care about indigenous black and people of color but that they are willing to do the to be held accountable for how white advantages are still operating thank you tina so much for that call to action there is something so, there's such, you have such an ability to give a call of action in the form of grace that is truly a gift. And I'm so grateful to be able to be in a space and witness it. And so thank you, Tina. You know, one thing that we have definitely talked and hit on is the importance of centering Black, Indigenous, and other people of color in this work, not just as a form of being anti-racist, but in the steps towards becoming anti-racist. Because there does, when we do things without intentionality, or we do things without thinking them truly through, there is the risk in racial justice work to cause harm, especially to those um, at the center of the margins. And so one thing I know that when we developed our assessment or more so adapt our assessment from y'all's is that we didn't include or take into account people's social identities. Our thought process at the time was we didn't want people's answers to be able to be identified by their social identities. Um, but it now feels like a misstep or a place where we should have reached out <laughs> for, for help on that, on that piece. Is there an importance to including people's social identities? I just want to say that that wasn't an oversight on your part. I think, yeah. you know, we're always learning about the gaps in, in this book that we published. We didn't do so. it either in our book. Um, so here we are um, learning as we go and reflecting on a shortcoming in our own practice, um, which I, I'm grateful we're having this conversation because I would do it differently. Um, you know, the next time. So the three columns that you use in yours are the three columns we have in ours. And we have no space in there for differentiating social identities in that. But I guess um, 
But just a thought in re, in response to your, and maybe it's not a, a direct answer to your question. When we collect the data as sort of written slips of paper, the identities are erased and they get homogenized in the way that we've been talking about. So if we are to differentiate and also create safety um, for people most at risk in the organization, then obviously the ways that we use this uh, assessment tool need to be much more creative than we've been with it. Um, and how, how that gets done in uh, whether it's, uh, you know, racialized staff getting together, um, white staff getting together, um, uh, after the kind of um, senior management work that Tina also talked about, um, how, how we organize this so that we're getting that specificity and not increasing the risk, I think is a really important conversation. At the risk of, you know, repeating myself and maybe um, being a little bit defensive about the, the org assessment, I confess, it's at the back of the book because it can. there's so much work to be done beforehand. And the many sections in the book before section five really outline the kind of work that leaders, whether they're in boards of education or sexual violence centers or, um, you know, a federal department or a small little brave women's organization somewhere in a rural town, that there is work to be done that uh, to in order to be equipped to do this work. So at PCAR, you do so much to educate people in the field, right, about sexual uh, violence prevention. There are all resources on the PCAR website that are educational because we need to learn how to um, analyze what is happening that is putting survivors of sexual violence at further risk and harm, even in the systems that are set up to support, right? And how we replicate how we internalize the very um, oppression that we're trying to challenge. So with racism, it's no different. And I wanna actually hold up the work that you, Tatiana, and Jackie, and others at PCAR did in creating a, a fantastic rubric that brought together some of the insights from sexual violence work and racial violence work what you know that is a tool that i think um leaders could use well so um just to say to the question that you're asking about you know should we get people to self-identify when completing the organizational assessment tool i don't think that that would that's the conclusion I'm hope, hoping people will take. 
what we were doing is saying that is a barrier to accurately interpreting or understanding the implications of the results. But the fix isn't to get people to self-identify. The fix is to, to have people in different parts of the organization, particularly those with the most organizational power, to, ha to have the necessary uh, discomforting conversations with each other about the implications of the of the items in that organizational checklist many senior leaders genuinely and sincerely make statements about wanting to dismantle racism seeing the connections between um, sexual violence work and addressing racism poverty classism right this is known now and senior leaders will genuinely say, we wanna do this work and invite people in and hire people into the organization whose job description says, you will educate and raise issues around um, racial justice slash EDI slash anti-racism. And I wanna pause and say, wait a minute, those are three very different terms. For <laughs> so before you put out that job description or you put out a policy or you make a statement, it would be worthwhile having a discussion about which term you are choosing and why. Because in the same way that sexual violence work requires an analysis of how men are privileged <laughs> and people who self-identify or um the gendering right of gender-based violence and how that gets replicated in institutions we have to do the same thing with racism so when senior leaders genuinely invite people the really uh consistent and troubling thing that happens is then people start to take them at their word and give them the feedback they are asking for about how are we doing how are we doing in being a racism-free organization or in addressing this? And then lo and behold, they hear things that are really, don't make them feel good. <laughs> they get feedback that is hard to hear. And so what we often see, what I'm seeing in three or four organizations that I'm working with currently, senior leaders start to blame the messenger. So the people who are telling them things are broken in their organization get diagnosed as you know, having some problems, they're seen as um, not competent, they get painted as the problem. Or um, you know, people who are seen as causing, as John Lewis said, making good trouble doing actually what they need to be doing to fulfill not just their job responsibilities, but their commitment to uh, stopping gender-based uh, violence by raising these questions um, get punished in different ways. And so when that starts to happen in an organization, people who believed that there was a possibility for making change and then see people around them being punished for doing it. It's a worse betrayal than being in an organization where leaders don't even 
mention wanting to do anti-racism work. It's debilitating, and I speak as a person who has experienced racism all my life and who's been working in organizations in good faith, genuinely trying to create solidarity with white people to do this work. And when I see that actually um, people are not living up to their word as leaders, or worse still, finding other people of color who are willing to make things more palatable and bringing them forward, those kinds of wounds hurt not just the organization, but the movement. And so I am saying, let's not go for the easy, the things that put individuals at risk, like self-identifying. Let's actually build in some norms and expectations of people to do the hard work of looking at, if we're inviting this, what is this going to cost me? What is this going to cost the leadership team? What is this going to cost the organization? Thank you, Tina. The, the thing that I'm, I'm thinking about, because uh, a lot of times when we do or have trainings or resources, geared towards anti-racism we often get the folks who are have been on the receiving end of that uh repercussions and and really i think what you're what you described was trauma or vicarious trauma for those as bystanders and i guess my question for you both uh is how how can for those listening how can they heal from those traumas from racism uh that they're experiencing in that uh institutional betrayal that you're that you spoke of I'm pausing because there's so much heartbreak in your question, Tatiana. Yeah, you're putting your finger on the psychological, spiritual, emotional, physical impacts of standing up and naming and caring and the consequences of uh, the punishment that happens the having to experience it 24 hours seven days a week shopping on the transit um getting groceries walking through the doors at work and then on top of that, often getting hired to do the work. And then on top of that, um, being isolated, critiqued for how we do the work. And uh, so I don't want to rush to an answer of healing without taking a moment to really um, let it sink in what the costs are of having to show up as 
particularly indigenous people and black people, I, I don't experience anti-black racism. I'm a person of color of South Asian descent. It's very clear to me that there are different costs to you as a black woman, Tatiana, than there are to me. We both experience racism, but I don't experience anti-black racism. I would begin a conversation with you there by just um, acknowledging that some of the healing can happen, needs to happen amongst us and with us and by us. And I wish that more organizations would recognize that and make resources available to us so that we can do that work um, in the spaces that we need and we choose rather than having to do them in the context of an organizational initiative where everyone is just brought in because there are definitely differential costs and impacts. I'd love to say more about that, but I'm really um, want to make sure that, you know, when you're speaking about bystanders and the impact of bystanders that, you know, I, I really um, find it important to listen to Barb when she's talking about as a white person, making choices that are different uh, so that we don't as indigenous and black and racialized pe people have to bear the brunt. And so I'm just going to invite that as well. Um, I was in a meeting yesterday to begin an advisory committee for a dismantling systemic racism project in an organization that I'm working in. And there were three white people, myself included, in the room, and they were all seasoned Indigenous and Black people who had tried in very many ways to move the organization through an indigenous circle, through a coalition of racialized workers. And it was an honor that they came together for this day because it takes a lot to hope again that this time there might be, it might be less damaging and it might be less painful. And so one of the things that I found myself doing yesterday was listening and asking questions um, and trying to identify the areas where we might work and what conversations about race and colonialism and white supremacy we needed to have in the organization. And, and we were only together for a day. We were only getting to know each other again for the day. Um, and so I felt like a part of my role was just to slow things down so that we could all listen to each other and take in all the wisdom, the pain, the struggle to hope again the need for white people to step up, the continual ways that white uh, obliviousness to our privilege and the way we were using it 
was painful and contributed uh, to the extra work that these people had to do. So um, I would say that there are conversations that I can have with white leaders that I need to have with white leaders and it's tricky because in the same way that Tina said before, you can't know in your white body what somebody else's experience is. I, as a white person who have a stake in an equitable organization that doesn't divide me from people I care about and work alongside, and I have to speak up humbly and to engage conversations humbly and, and to continually ask questions and listen when I don't know. And a lot of the time I don't know. So all I know is that my silence is an exercise of white privilege. My silence is an exercise of white privilege. And so I start with that. I want to um, pick up on something there because I, I want to explore this question that you're asking about healing Tatiana with real humility because I, <laughs> I don't feel like I really have an answer. I don't. Um, what I want to do is explore some of the questions that arise for me as we're thinking about that. And part of the reason I wanted Barb to talk about the role of white people is that um, part of what I would like to see organizations do is put the onus on white people to do more of the work and give us the space to do more of our healing. There's been a real inequity. Uh, and the point I was trying to make earlier is that we live the impact of racism in our personal lives, in our social lives, in our political lives, in our cult. There isn't an aspect of any place where we go where it's not alive and um, shaping our experiences. And so to have to do it, to have to experience it at work and then to do the heavy lifting of dismantling it is um, so problematic in so many ways. And I want to be cautious here because I don't, you know, sometimes Indigenous, Black, and, and people of color get anxious when I say things like that because many employment opportunities that have been made available to us are under the conditions that we will do that work. Dismissing all the other knowledge and skills that we bring and assuming that that is the most useful way we can contribute to the organization, which is, you know, such a manifestation of, of racism. And so, you know, when Barb is speaking about white people, silence, making it more dangerous for us, because then we have to speak up because we don't have a choice. 
we either speak up or we we <laughs> suffer the consequences or we feel we're betraying others who are experiencing the racism and if we're given a voice then we should use it there are many ways in which i feel like we get just um, squeezed in these vice grips of if you're in the belly of an organization and you're indigenous or black or a person of color there are triple pressures to do something because you're in the organization speak up on to, to benefit those who need the services speak up on behalf of those who have just who are new to the organization and are innocent enough that they don't know what's going to come at them and speak up because how can you look yourself in the mirror and so we we experience these huge pressures for our, from our communities from ourselves and i think that um, part of our healing is to um, put some of that pressure where it belongs on white people in the organization to have the organization actually begin to quantify and compensate appropriately the work that we have to do um, and the differential costs because of the bodies that we're in and to actually have a monetary figure for that. Many organizations have women's committees, have all kinds of initiatives that are viewed as good but then when you want to have a committee that's looking at that gives indigenous people a place to to come together as indigenous people there are questions raised do we have the resources how how come that happens on paid time i'm i'm going on and on but i i'm wanting to broaden this question of healing from the many good things to be said about how we heal spiritually and emotionally and psychologically in many ways but i want to because this is a conversation about organizational assessments for and the internal work that has to happen organizationally i want to be very explicit and clear that um, in the same way as we understand the supports that are necessary for survivors of sexual violence to heal is a long-term differentially resourced process that that same analysis needs to come in to as we explore responses to the question that you've posed about it tatiana absolutely i i think the 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 important thing that's been brought up throughout our conversation today is the role of leaders, senior leaders, in not just organizational assessments, but just in the scope of doing and becoming an anti-racist organization. So Barb, is there, what are some ways um, that you feel are crucial roles of those senior leaders to, I feel like we've hit on a lot <laughs> of them thus far, but are there some other roles of senior I, leaders? I think um, that the, uh, once again, uh, 
Tina has talked about the desire of most senior leaders in the organizations that we work, many of these are white women. And, and they're white women who are progressive uh, around feminist issues, for example, and who have fought a really good fight um, uh, for the liberation of women who uh, have a good analysis of patriarchy and who see themselves on the underside of that power. And um, Tina referred to earlier the trick of um, recognizing that you may be the, on the underside of one kind of power um, and on the overside of another kind of power. So in this case, um, there is a lot of work for white women leaders to do um, because that's mostly what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with more white women than I am with white men um, to uh, look at um, their roles as activists around um, patriarchy and, uh, and try to think about what that looks like then when they are part of the white spaces and the white supremacy that is oppressing other people. And so that means sitting with a lot of discomfort um, and a different image of yourself that is what's required by, by uh, those of us trying to do this work is to enlarge the image of ourselves, not just as fighters for the rights of women, but to undo, to sit in, to notice when our whiteness is preventing us from doing the right thing when the woman is black or indigenous or uh, brown woman. Um, and so that work, uh, I think, is ongoing. And I mean, in this little tool that we also have just before our, um, our, uh, our little checklist, um, is a one-pager on group dynamics and racial equity work. And there's a column on white people. And I think that it's important for us as white people, white women in many cases, to look at how often we get to be observers, the ones who listen to and weigh the evidence of whether racism is really happening or not. That we have to be convinced that racism um, and other forms of oppression that we don't uh, experience are actually happening, that we assume that anti-racism education is an opportunity to learn about racialized people rather than about our own whiteness and what impact it's having. And how can we learn to expect that we're going, if we're lucky, we're going to be challenged on what we're not picking up? and what we're, we're not seeing. Um, I mean, I've been lucky to have Tina, who, who does this with me in a very loving way. If you're not in relationship, if you're not in relationship with somebody for who's going to take the effort to do that with you, why would they take the effort to do that with you? So building relationships building relationships with people who are actually experiencing the racism, loving relationships 
so that you have a stake. You can see the stake and that you're more likely to be challenged. Um, so anyway, I invite people to take a look at that list too. That's some of the work that we as white people have to do. It's ongoing. It doesn't stop people. It's still happening here in this body. Good grief. I remember distinctly when that list emerged and it emerged after a session in which um, indigenous black and racialized people had to suffer <laughs> through listening to white people um, speak in ways that were really harmful because um, the training initiative or the education or the presentations, whatever you want to call the interventions to build different awareness or knowledge about racism and anti-racism seem to happen with an assumption that white people can say and do and ask anything, <laughs> right? So that, um, that uh, page that Barb is pointing listeners to emerge from that as a way of trying to make really explicit the differential costs and the differential ways in which white people benefit. So you asked a question, Tatiana, about what do senior leaders need to keep in mind? I would invite three things. One is that if you say that your organization wants to identify, name explicitly, and then tackle the ways racism is definitely happening in your organization, is to remember that you are inviting, you are actually inviting people around you to subject you to scrutiny. I think senior leaders often miss that and it's so bewildering to me. It's like, you know, they will say, we want to do this. And then they'll even say, we want to consult. And then when they their actions are subjected to an appropriate level of scrutiny, are so upset and distressed. And so I'm a bit bewildered by that. And I just want to remind all of us as leaders that when we're saying we want to tackle this type of work, of doing anti-oppression work, we are in saying that we are inviting that level of scrutiny and to be really conscious of that. The second thing I want to say, you know, is that where I've learned a lot about this is in having to be accountable for my heterosexual privilege. <laughs> I ha I've learned a lot about what it means to be subjected to that kind of scrutiny because I've wanted to have people look at, you know, look at how much I want to be in there and fighting heterosexism and all the books I've read. <laughs> 
But actually, my job, as I was saying earlier, is to look at, oh, look at that. Look how I just got a benefit that I didn't have to work for just because I'm heterosexual. And so I would say to senior leaders, your main job is to look at how you're benefiting on a daily, moment-to-moment basis from the very form of privilege that um, you're probably oblivious to, which is why those folks that are saying you missed it are pissing you off so much. And I know because I've been, I've had, I've been subjected to it. It's not easy, but that's what we're inviting. And the third thing I want to say to senior leaders, if you want to do this work, and I believe there is a real desire um, in many organizations that had somehow got away with not looking at this until 2020. Okay, I'm going to be good and not, not embellish on that. But let me just say, if there are sincere effort being made now in organizations to address racism. What I want to say to senior leaders is make sure that the biggest risks of doing this work are on you and not on the frontline people or the people most vulnerable. So the way you know that you are doing this work well is if you are the one most at risk. Tina, that's a bumper sticker. Well, let's, let's get the t-shirts. <laughs> I know someone with a cricket machine that would be so happy to make that into a t-shirt. Mm. But that is absolutely extremely powerful um, and a really great point to make, Tina. So thank you. So as we wrap up, today in this conversation, which I feel like we could keep going and explore all the many avenues uh, that this conversation can lead us to. Is there anything that you all would like to share with our audience as the most critical piece to ensuring racial equity within an organization? I think it's hard to follow what Tina just said. Um, but I think um, going even beyond the, it's the inviting in, invite in scrutiny make create conditions where people can tell you what's going on if you don't know what's going on and you probably don't if you're white at the top of the organization you have to create those conditions where people can tell you and not suffer reprisals i would invite senior leaders to do begin the work themselves. Often organ in organizations, racial justice, anti-racism, equity, diversity, inclusion work is often assumed to be the work of frontline or program staff, which is one of the biggest reasons it remains in place. So 
my suggestion is that senior leaders take it up as their work first, that they actually have some meaningful ways for boards of directors to hold them accountable with clear measures for how they as senior managers are doing the work rather than relying on program staff and frontline staff to provide that evidence. That would be my invitation. Well, Tina, Barb, it has been an honor and a privilege to talk to you both about organizational assessments, culture change, healing, and uh, moving forward. That's all the time that we have today, but thanks for listening to this episode of PA Centered. To find PCAR's Adapted Organizational Checklist and the resources mentioned on this podcast, visit www.pcarpcar.org slash resources slash podcast. Any views or opinions expressed on PA Centered by staff or their guests are solely their own and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of PCAR or PCAR's funders.